Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your patience and welcome to number four in the review panel. My guests this evening, I'm David Cohen, by the way, uh, art critic for New York Sun, uh, editor and publisher of artcritical.com and gallery director at the New York Studio School. My guests are, from left, uh, geographically, uh, Walter Robinson, who is the editor of Artnet magazine, Alexi Wirth, the painter who is represented by D.C. Moore Gallery and is on sabbatical, he tells me, from Art Forum and The New Yorker magazine, where for many years we've been reading his blurbs, his capsule reviews, and James Gardner, who is art critic of the New York Post and also holds the chair as a senior architectural correspondent of The New York Sun and is a regular contributor to the National Review and other publications. Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Just to remind us, we've all been seeing various exhibitions. Petter Coyne, who's showing at uh, the Gallery Le Long in Chelsea. We're studying her show, and we're also aware of her exhibition at the Sculpture Centre in Long Island City. Just to run through some of her images... Uh, This is, uh, they're all mixed media works uh, using flowers and uh, trees and encaustic and wax and so on and so forth, Uh, mostly untitled. This one, however, is uh, subtitled Little Ed's Daughter Margaret, and it's from 2003 to 4. This one is Homeland, 2002 to 4, and Whirlwind uh, of this year, uh, all to be seen at uh, Le Long. This one really is untitled. It doesn't even have a subtitle title. And installation shots from the Sculpture Center. After COIN, we'll be looking at uh, the uh, two exhibitions. Again, the two-part exhibition of Diana Theta, whose work uh, has to be seen at uh, David Zwerner in Chelsea and Zwerner and Worth, um, not far from here. I point out, by the way, I'm, I'm sure most of us have been traipsing around during daylight hours to see these shows, but um, one can see to full effect this Werner and Worth installation only after dusk, so perhaps if we're so inspired by this evening's discussion or, or, or by these slides to do so, you're, we can traipse down to, uh, is it 67th Street? 69th. 69th Street to Zwerner and Worth, where from the street you get the full effect of her uh, nocturnal installation this is uh, down in Chelsea. It's, uh, it's continuous, contiguous, 2004 to 5, uh, multimedia installation with projections and LED displays on the floor. This piece is uh, a series of events from 2003, uh, a, a two-part uh, uh, LCD installation. Uh, this is Surface Effect of 1997. Um, the Theta exhibition Uh, focuses both on uh, current work and also on uh, an older body of uh, nature-related video installations, such as uh, uh, Shimmer of 1997 and Foam of 1997. A much earlier piece up uh, uptown, uh, Long Rise Over Snake River of 1994, and uh, this this film made in collaboration, uh, Jump 2004. And the third exhibition under review this evening is, is James Hyde's uh, show at uh, Brent Sycamore uh, in Chelsea. All works from 2004. 
This one is called Around Sound. It's painting on found image. Dragon. Equivalent. Ghost. Halo. And Louis and Light. Again, the element of photography. Oh, and, and finally, a Paragraph. Our final exhibition this evening will be Cecily Brown showing a new work at Gagosian Gallery in Chelsea. Girl Eating Birds, again, all images from 2004. I Will Not Paint Any More Boring Leaves. The Quarrel. Tripe with Lemons. Thanks, Rudy Hooster. and a diptych park. Fabulous. Powering down. I mean, fabulous, the presentation. I'm not casting any critical comments yet. (laughs) (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, and thank you once again to the National Academy for their inspiration and dedication in hosting this and in securing uh, incredible press for it that I... As a gallery director, uh, I'm seething with envy at your ability to do. And, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Great. Well, gentlemen, and I'm sorry, by the way, a very important announcement. I'm sorry in this enlightened day and age to be presenting you with an all-male lineup. It, it, it is in part due to the fact, as I'm sure we, many of us know and realize, that um, sadly, Kim Levin, who was scheduled to be a panelist, has, is unable to join us. She's Uh, indisposed, and we'll definitely be having her uh, back very soon, and we'll uh, wish her a a speedy recovery. At at short notice, Walter Robinson generously uh, agreed to to join the panel. It is an all-male lineup, but uh, by way of atonement, we do have a 75% female lineup of uh, artists under view, although the radical feminist might well argue that uh, to have uh, women be the subject of the criticism and the men doing it just confirms... uh, every feminist's worst view of the institution of criticism. That said, gentlemen, what do we make of uh, Petter Coyne? Anybody, anybody massively enthusiastic? Anybody massively angered by this exhibition? I, I was massively enthusiastic. Wonderful. Which is quite rare for me. I thought that it was one of the best uh, exhibitions I've seen in a long time. Uh, it was excellent in both locations, in Chelsea as well as at the Sculpture Center, though for some strange reason, I thought that the work looked better and was better displayed in Chelsea than in the Sculpture Center. What I liked about it was that uh, it had, to my mind, my taste, a kind of inexorable integrity and authenticity and thoroughness in the manner in which it carried through its vision. It's an unforgettable vision. It's an extremely powerful vision. And it's one that somehow sucks in everything around it into the orbit of its peculiar artifice. Something about the the gothic or almost goth sensibility of it resonated with me, so uh, I give an en- it an enthusiastic endorsement. Uh, Walter, are you a closet goth? Are you? Uh, how did you take to pet a coin? Well. Uh, in, I guess in this case, I would say, um, although I don't really like it, I can certainly admire it. 
I don't particularly like its Gothic quality or its Victorian quality either. You know, they're amazing constructions. This is really actually a museum show that's that's just starting here and is traveling around. And um, I don't know. I saw her at the opening, and she was wearing Isimiyaki pleats, very sharp, black, silver, and very sharp and stylish. And in a sense, that sort of seemed appropriate to me that that the these big things that to me, they just don't really mean anything except the fantasticness of their own construction. Um, and it's sort of, sort of like contemporary high-class fashion in a way. She'd been more comfortable <clears throat> if, if she was dressed like Miss Havisham or something. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, she really is in a way dressed like Miss Havisham. In the work? Yes. Um, in a way, they're, what are they like? Cornell brought up to date and overblown. They're like treasures and all sorts of things buried in there. And um, this whole motif of, of an overabundance of roses covered with black wax, which is, uh, I think, scientifically treated, right? So it lasts well. Um, I mean, what do you want to make, make of that? Uh, I came to my maturity, such as it is in the 60s and 70s, and that kind of theater and that kind of uh, drama, melodrama, is just not what I cut my teeth on. But like I say, you know, I, I, I'm actually sort of just saying this to be the devil's, play the devil's advocate, you know. I would never rush into print with an attack on the work. I don't feel that way about it. Okay, but you've, you've said we've, we've got some parameters here. And uh, Alexei Worth, were you able to uh, identify with this as, as, as James did, or is, did, it, did it smack of a kind of fashion theatricality, as, as, as Walter is suggesting? I, I, um, I hate to uh, sit right in the middle, but here I am. Um, I, I have always liked her work, um, enjoyed it. I like, the, um, I like how absurdly female and tacky it is. I like the kind of tampon, teabag, hairball, snaked out your drain and here's what you got kind of look of a lot of those pieces. I like um, their profusion, the sense of a kind of almost indiscriminate, although of course it isn't, but a kind of a, a process of agglomeration that results in these very specific objects. Um, I like, um, um, I, I was, uh, for a long time I was interested in how Catholic they were. Then I felt like she took up that theme herself. I think people were writing about that a little bit. And there's a, there's a piece in the current catalog essay by, um, what's her name, Eleanor Hartney, who's written about Catholicism and art. And not, I thought, a very illuminating piece about her qua Catholic. Um, but... Um, but I, I mean, maybe that's one way to begin talking about the problems in the work, which it seems to me that she recognizes that the work is in a kind of a crisis or a kind of problematic plateau. That it's got, it's, it is kind of elegant and um, resonant and it um, has a kind of grotesque beauty, but it, it I, I feel like my guess is that she's a little frustrated and hence we've seen this effort to move Catholic into these Catholic themes with the Madonnas, which I don't think really panned out. Um, then an effort to move into the, the um, hair pieces. She was given by Anne Hamilton this huge um, treasure trove of horse hair, I believe. Is that right? Anyway, so she had a whole show of horse hair, which was kind of 
beautiful uh, calligraphic gestures on the wall over, all over the place. There's one in the uh, Sculpture Center show. Um, but it kind of moves sideways. Like she chose a different material, did a different thing with it, got the same effect. Um, and then also the photography, which you know I think is more or less obviously the least successful direction. But it seems like she's trying to break out of something like the qualities Walter's talking about um, and not doing so successfully so far. I mean, to me, the, the, the problem at its simplest level is that they do hit the same note every time. Mm. Yes. I, sorry to be true to the geographic arrangement of the panel, but like Alexia, I'm, I'm in the middle and, and seem to be on, uh, on the subject of this Catholic artist, a, a genuine agnostic, because um, like James, I can see and admire the sense of uh, craft and the sense of... Um, uh, a particular emotional quality that she's obviously after and 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 demonstrably gets, but um, um, I'm just left very um, I'm just left very hungry from each piece. I get an effect, but that effect doesn't lead into a questioning of either the meaning or the form or uh, quality or value of the specific individual piece. It seems to be like. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like a, it's not just one note in terms of emotion, but it's it's one note in in terms of of how it resonates. It has that mysterious Gothic horror quality of black roses and uh, uh, of of frozen death. It's a sort of bit of a cultural stereotype of what Catholicity is, Catholicness is. Um, and as for well. There's also the sensation that I want to be overwhelmed by it. It has to be an installation. It doesn't work as sculpture. It only works as installation. And that's very telling because, in fact, what the sensation we had at, at Le Long was very much of individual pieces. These, this were, they were discrete pieces. And I felt, forget it. That's not you. If you're going to work, you've got to overwhelm me with a, in, a, in a kind of operatic effect because there isn't a distinction, enough of a sculptural organic distinction, one piece to another. I didn't feel I was moving from one emotional statement to the next. But James? Okay. Well, well first of all, I should say that I've learned my lesson, and by way of expiation, that's the last nice thing I'll say this evening. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I actually felt, you know, I started at 19th Street and worked my way up to 26th with, I guess it was there the Petacoin was. And uh, I found that the further uptown you went, the better things got. But we're doing it in reverse order. <laughs> um, if you look at it, and, and this is an odd argument to be making since I tend to be a somewhat traditionalist critic uh, and not to have any evident sympathy for postmodernism in general, but I think that if you look at her works in purely modernist or traditional sculptural terms, you could argue that there is a certain deficiency or it doesn't go far enough or it doesn't provide enough or it is too scattered or immaterial. But the great value of it is in a purely, for me, in more in a postmodern sculptural sense than in a uh, traditional sculptural sense, that it is for me, the perfect distillation, and now, and this was for me, obviously other people didn't feel the same way, but the perfect distillation of an experience, and as that, as the ability to conjure up this, for me, very powerful sense of 
the Gothic or the Catholic or whatever you want, it, it worked very well. I would also say that you could probably argue in defending it along more slightly more traditional lines that there is something almost of minimalism in it, paradoxically, because it has the immediacy, the stunt-like directness that you might associate with one of uh, um, one of the works of uh, you know Tony Smith's Big Cube or something like that. The paradox being that obviously it's apparent sensibility that gothicness, that Catholicity is directly at odds with the stated and unstated aims of minimalism and also it achieves that stunt-like immediacy through this almost overwhelming multifariousness of means and formal devices. Let's but pick up. Let's pick up this idea of uh, the minimalism because um, uh, I, I heard shades of uh, echoes of Michael Fried, uh, Walter, in in your criticism of of Coin, um, uh, echoes of Michael Fried's critique of minimalism, precisely for being theatrical. Um, is it is it from a kind of modernist perspective that you find her to be theatrical and that's objectionable? Well, I'm thinking they they are certainly very serious. Somber. She's very serious. Somber or high-powered? Well, she's very serious about what she's doing, I guess. Oh, yeah, but, uh, but uh, she personally, or, the, or we have a sort of sense of seriousness in the work itself? Oh. I mean, all artists are serious, we hope, but um, sometimes you get a sense of uh, gaiety and nonchalance in a very perfectly serious work of art, and sometimes you get a sense of uh, somber, heavy intellectuality in a work. Now... Where, where do you feel the where do you feel the center is in in coin? Is it is it in something purely emotional, or is she is she is she working through the craft in a conceptual way in in any way? Oh, I couldn't say. I'm trying to find. I'm trying to think of a. I'm trying to think of a way a way in. You know, um, since I since I started out being the negative one, now I want to equivocate. You know, <laughs> but um, I'm not. I'm not doing very well. You know, if you. If you think of James Hyde's sculptures, they're not quite so. I mean, of course, they're everybody's serious, but they're not quite as yes. as serious as Peta's sculptures are. And I don't know, like, but it's I just like how how can they? You know, I really like them, and I hate to say this, but how can they not be these huge? Huge kitsch monuments, you know? It's bizarre, is that, actually. Is that, is that yeah. like? an out-of-date reaction to, to think that somehow they're just like, I think of the home, they make me think of the home shopping channel, you know? And they, I, I, you have to forgive me. If not at all. No, that's a, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I actually had the sensation with one of the pieces that I was looking at um, Jeff Kuhn's puppy, but the dog had gone away. And uh, Alexi... But I guess it comes down to taste, see, because Kuhn's puppy I like. Yes. But these things I don't, so maybe it's just a, um, a matter of taste, like this, this whole sort of, this whole Victoriana thing just doesn't appeal to me. Let's pick up, Alexi, if we can, the, the themes that have emerged so far with her, the, the, the sense of um, craft, but whether the craft adds up to something, and, and the issue of whether they're um, contained sculptural expressions or whether they're uh, generalized installation effects. Right. Well, I, I completely agree with what you had said earlier, and I, I added 
had meant to say myself, that it seemed like the, the installation, the kind of uh, incipient installation um, is the sense, wh when I have that sense in the work, it's when it seems strongest. And it was when she was doing installation in the late 80s, it seems to me that the work was mm. the strongest. And I kept finding, looking at through these, both these shows, that the pieces I liked best were from about 89, like Whirlwind, <clears throat> Whirlwind, yes. which I think you showed. It just seemed to me that the current pieces are, are a little bit um, more homogenous and, and less surprising. They're still, I mean, I still, it's always a pleasure to see them, but I think they're not well served by being seen together. Um, that I think, you know, for a lot of them, one piece or two or three would, would you know, um, change Walter's mind more. So one really overwhelming, strong, impressive piece, given a whole cathedral to, to work in, would be preferable. Is it, is it, is it a, a sad case of an artist who's succeeded but now needs to produce uh, a work for each museum in America, and so each show we see of hers is going to be that the after effect of, of a once interesting installation artist? In a way, she's part of a generation of people who, I mean, there was a kind of sculpture moment in the mid to late 80s mm. and there were a lot of people I think who did um, maybe their best work in the in the midst of that excitement mm. and then kind of you know so who are her contemporaries then uh, I, I, you know uh, per year and people is he a little older or right I, I presume he's maybe only a little bit older but yes. but came to attention at the same time right right um, so it seemed to me that um, I mean I I respect James's admiration for the craft because just how they work, how they hold together is is impressive. The fact that, that one has a sense of intrigue and a sense of rapport with it is, is, is for me, strong and positive. Um, but once I get past that initial sensation, I'm really comparing it unfavorably to an artist like Kara Walker, for instance, who's also using a very definite craft. But the craft is always absolutely mortgaged to um, a political and intellectual and aesthetic consciousness so that they're always kind of one is bouncing off the other you can't you can't exclude one and look at the other they're always there together um, how would would you compare her favorably with an artist like Cara? do you see what I'm getting at with Cara Walker and why well, I prefer her right. well well their ambitions are entirely different I would say with Petacoin th there's there's a retreat from politics if it was ever even an issue. That's the impression I got. You could argue that there are political dimensions to it, but I think that one wouldn't get very far with it. Uh, but can't that be religious or, or, or you, you could argue that. psychological? I mean, yeah, you, you, certainly could, you could certainly could argue that. But I think my response to her art, my response to what I perceive to be her intentions, is that she's trying to create something that has an experiential validity and reality that transcends and that abruptly nullifies any of those questions. It's an almost dreamlike absoluteness. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the thing I, I, I responded to best in it was what seemed to me the success with which she had achieved that sort of provisional absoluteness that you get in dreams. Right. You know, and, and the ability which is in a way rare in in work in works of art because they are usually specific and constrained spatially to have this overall effect uh this sense of uh 
commanding the space around it. I guess obviously in sculpture you can yes. do better than in uh, other art forms. So, uh, so uh, I would say that uh, her ambitions are very different. Right. I, I do acknowledge that there is the there there is the element of kitsch there. There is the element of uh, the so to speak. I think she might endorse this vision. The 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 notion of women's work and you know clothing and stuff like that. Uh, and and we've seen all those themes before, uh, mm. but I think that even in acknowledging her intended abjectness and degradedness, out of it comes a a a, a an authenticity and a, a power which great is worth having. authenticity and power. Well, thank you for that. Now, perhaps the exhibition here of American surrealism that Isabel Deveau has put together and opens uh, momentarily will. Will will have us rethinking. Uh, once we see Leonora Carrington, we'll want to run down to Chelsea and take another look at uh, Peter Coyne. Uh, Walter was correct to point out that the uh, the show that in Long Island City is in fact a travelling museum show. It's uh, uh, instigated by uh, the Albright Knox in Buffalo and uh, is on national tour. Um, what I'm going to do this evening, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you that have been to review panels in the past, is for the panel to uh, review a couple of exhibitions, and then we'll bring in the audience. So let's move on to uh, Dynatheta with a two-part exhibition at uh, David Zwerner and Zwerner and & Worth, and also a day and night exhibition in that uh, one needs to uh, be there for the nocturnal effect. Um, who would like to kick us up on this? Uh, Alexi, could you uh, give us a response to Dynatheta? Oh, sure. Um... I hated her piece at Dia a couple of years ago, um, passionately. Uh, it was called Knots Surfaces, and um, it was up for what seemed to me like years and years. Every time I went to Dia, there it would be. Um, and probably some of you saw it. It was a piece about, the piece about bees. Um, and so this, these pair of pieces came as a relief to me. I liked them much better. It seemed like um, the kind of faux science um, number that she was doing with the bees um, had dropped away a great deal. And here we got, certainly in the cloud piece, a kind of simple, beautiful effect. Um, and in the, the main work that's downtown, the um, continuous, uh, continuous... Continuous. Continuous. Um, continuous. You know, the, the kind of primal experience of that piece is, is uh, again, a kind of riveting, simple... Um, uh, visual effect. We're traveling up and down the crane, the 300-foot crane in the rainforest on one side, and then we're looking at the view out from the crane into the leaves and branches on the other side. Um, and so, you know, I felt, and, and her, the armature that surrounds that, the kind of uh, way the cameras are set up and the, the self-consciousness of the idea of the apparatus of, of study and the things studied and the animals on the floor is all, you know, set up with a kind of um, clarity and, um, and rigor. Um, so it seems to me a much stronger show from my point of view. On the other hand, I still find very hard to really, um, really like um, the dryness and kind of conscientiousness of her work. I feel like it, um, it's so, um, in a certain way, it's so well-behaved, it's so um, mm -hmm. uh, responsibly smart. Um, it's, you know, she's clearly someone who's read a lot of kind of critical theory and um, has no bones about, you know, putting in the occasional Foucault quote if you weren't sure. And, um, you know, I, I don't really think that they're, 
I think that work has momentum, and I think it's it's um, got real integrity. Yes. And I don't yet see a kind of the quirks of a temperament in it. Did you, uh, Walter, come away with um, an emotional response to the work? Did you did you feel you'd entered into a, a mindset that the work was helping to determine, or were you also a little confounded by its sensibility? Well, it didn't really turn me on either, but since... You know, I had this assignment. I really worked hard to try to, to figure out something. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, to liven things up, I thought, I read the review in the Times this morning, and I forget who, the, who wrote it, but they liked the piece in the windows the best, and I was thinking, oh, no, that's, that's just as kitschy as anything, you know, Coin did with these goofy clouds. I guess it's actually smoke, not clouds. Um, on on the blue windows at night, you know, it's like on the on the front of Iwanworth's apartment above the gallery up there. So, but um, you know, I think I think what Alexi said is kind of true. That on it's like uh, the coin of avant-garde art is the incredibly simple gesture, and she's sort of saying, okay, so Dan Flavin has this white neon tube, because she put a white neon tube in the space uptown with a simple projection of what looks like clouds. And, okay, so he, she's just making projected images. That's what she does. And she projects them onto the corner of a room, so she's trying to bring in the architecture. And downtown also, there's, there was this sort of sense of the room and the, the image lapping off into the other space. And I guess you can kind of get into like the the whole apparatus of it you know na- natu- the nature versus the artificial because she's like the animal artist and um, you know she talks about shimmering and froth or it's just <clears throat> like all surface and maybe there's some kind of you know philosophical thing there I don't know you know um, I think like is this something I actually covet? Not so much. I always like the, the idea of the TV screens as sculpture. Mm-hmm. And you know, in downtown, there's a couple, there's a bunch of monitor pieces actually. And okay, so it's like, it's gonna like take out all the color. One's red, one's green, one's blue. Or there's one that's of some, some clouds over a Western landscape and somehow she takes out the color so they're like candy coated. Mm-hmm. And that would be kind of cool. And they're old monitors, you know, that they don't make anymore, so she had to get a bunch and hoard them. Sort of like Dan Flavin uh, and his... And his, his and his they're staggered, those, those color landscapes. Yeah. She, she separated the three color channels and then slightly staggered them in time. And it's sort so of like the, it's sort of the red is ahead of the blue. Yeah. They don't seem like but very... If you could have uh, that in your house as a sculpture, I would kind of dig that. There's a lot of... There's several artists who do that. Matthew... Um, What's his name? Not Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McCaslin does that, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, you know, in terms of, I guess a bunch of artists did that. And yes. It seemed to me that most of her gestures were very uh, rather tired academic uh, in- video installation gestures. Uh, I, I the, the boxes on top of each other. I mean, I, it was fun for about five minutes, to, well, five seconds, to see the, the, the uh, flat screens on the ground. But um, I then was sort of trying to get into the possible reasons why I should be looking at the anteater crawling up a, a branch that's on the floor rather than on the wall. And um, they seemed like rather tried and tested uh, techniques. I couldn't, <coughs> I didn't feel, I don't, I think it's a little cynical 
perhaps to think that she's just um, uh, projecting images is her thing the way light strips of Flavin's. I, I, I have to assume that she wants to get across and say something about nature versus artifice, and that's what she's sort of exploring. But um, she didn't compel me to see exactly where or why she was exploring that. Um, James, you've already told us that we've, we've got all the um, enthusiasm we're going to get from you this evening, so I, with trepidation... <laughs> It seems like it's a foregone conclusion that's sort of zero out of four so far here, but... I promise to be enthusiastic in my dislike of it. I, I thought that uh, it was the least of the shows we saw. I would also say that, you know, I have to admit my prejudice. I just tend not to like video art. Some of it I like better than others. Some of it is very good, but it takes a rare work to impress me through the capacity of its video art. Uh, and, and just by way of preface, and I'll lead into what I'll say about, um, about uh, uh, theater, theater. Theater. that uh, yeah, I, I've often wondered about the genesis of the interest in video art, and it seemed to me that certain artists, certain postmodern artists, have always harbored a secret envy of people who work in other media like literature and music and cinema because if the ultimate criterion is dullness and you look at... It's very hard to make a boring painting because you can consume it in a second or five seconds or a minute. But really to get quality dullness, you have to instill in it the perpetuity of another medium, preferably something like Wagnerian opera, not that Wagner is boring. I, I love Wagner. <laughs> So that for me is the genesis of uh, a lot of video art, and I find that she is true to that aspect of it. It's quite astonishing how boring she manages to be in rather uh, economical, e economical terms. She doesn't mm. use that much material. Uh, I thought that the least of her work was, and I think uh, I agree with other people on this panel in saying this, the television sets on the floor were the least of her works because, well, I'll say that what was best about her work and was probably the best thing about in the potentiality of video art is the way that it can create an overall environment. That's why I responded a little better to the Dia installation than I did to most of the things that uh, are now showing, you know, downtown and uptown. <coughs> Uh, she, the, the, I liked the clouds, there was something there. I, I thought that it was neat, that was hardly revolutionary what she did with the exterior of the gallery. But in those instances where she created an overall environment, she did rather better than when she localized and delimited the artifice to the ambits of a television set. Ironically, then, you and I seem to have the same problem. Well, no, you didn't, but it's the same problem that, that I identified with the Petter coin, that it's, it's better to be enveloped by a sensation that's a bit thin than to have it focused in some uh, object that's supposed to be kind of organic, I mean, a thing in itself. Yeah. I, I would just throw out two things um, in partial defense of, of, of her work. One is that in that main piece, the contiguous piece, there's a moment that I thought was very beautiful when um, the projection of the leaves of the forest interior, it, it switches from wall to wall in the course of the piece, but at one point it, it shoots across into a corner and then 
there's an open doorway, and so part of it shoots into the next room. And looking at it, there's a kind of disorienting and beautiful effect because as it, as it hits the different planes of the room, the speed of the video changes. So it's, suddenly it's in, when it hits sort of six different planes, suddenly it's in six different um, speeds. And it, that's a really beautiful disorienting effect. And it, um, it only happens in one corner of the piece, and it, doesn't, it only happens like every eight or ten minutes or something like that. But, and it only happens in that gallery move it to a gallery that doesn't have a door on the corner and you lose the one magical effect. Well, who knows, but I, 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 I don't know. I just think it's worth noticing beautiful things when you see them. Definitely. And Definitely. Um, the other thing is that in some th- earlier work, I mean, some of the work that she first became known for, she worked not just with animals in the somewhat generic way she does here, but with trained animals. And I think that was a much more interesting kind of central narrative about human trainers, animals, dolphins, and wolves... <clears throat> who were kind of actors in the sense of of a theatrical production and of coercion and reward, you know, echoed back into the whole art audience thing in a very natural, simple way that, sure, it was um, motivated by theory and reading, but it just was a perfect choice. And so I, I would just, partly for the purposes of balance and contrarianness, um, say... She's somebody who can do work that's more interesting than this when she finds exactly the right material, and she may do so again. I can see a whole museum show taking shape of the the, the modern the, the video animalier with uh, Theta and uh, Gordon with his elephant and uh, uh, Nauman with his mouse. It was, uh, right, and of course, showing next to Jim Hyde was um, Daphne Berwick, yes, um, yes. another animal, piece and closely related, really, to what was going on with Diana Theta. Well, with a view, with with, with the exception of uh, of some enthusiasm from uh, Alexi here, the panel turned out to be rather packed with. Um, Theta haters. So I'm rather hoping, I'm rather hoping that, uh, that, that we're going to have some defence of Diana uh, Theta and Petter Coyne from from the pa- from the audience. Uh, it's a good moment to take a little break from these four and and pass the roving mic around wherever that is. Thank you. Um, any anybody anybody like to share some comments? Uh, brief brief and succinct comments, lady in the front. Yeah. Well, I think in the theater, uh, I, I felt it to be very sensuous, uh, not, not quite the moment when I walked in, you know, the one, the surround one. And um, when the leaves kind of came, came in and came out, this, this sense of this space that uh, went back. Um, also the thing of the sensuousness and then the tower, so that there was mind, suggested of mind, that the science, the scientist mind next to this sensuality and then then the um, the monitors on the floor were like windows so you had this sensuality and you have this way that the mind often works which is seeing things in windows you know you can only see so much you see these windows but but I also love the effect in the monitors of this space looking down we don't usually look down we usually you know we look up in a situation like that and looking down, and also the animals to me were delightful, and the the butterfly. And I mean, you know, they're they're attractive. They're they're very, you know, one wants to take them in. Um, for Petacoin, I think you really missed um, the humor in her work. It, there is this gothic thing. There's this awfulness, but if you go all the way along that, then you come to this sense of humor, and it's sort of the. Um, 
it's the reply. If there's kind of a statement and a reply in a work, the humor is, is the kind of reply. And it also allows you to escape um, from this more somber mm -hmm. aspect. Okay. Um, Great, thank you, thank you. And next, please, somebody else uh, would like to talk, would like to question or comment on what we've had so far. Yes, lady in the... Hi, uh, just something about Peter Coyne. Um, that I believe her earlier work in the 80s was fueled by a battle with cancer, either her own or someone near to her, and that while I hope um, critics in general would pay attention to what male artists swear to their openings as well, her work certainly does center around her own body, and that those early very surreal amorphous or biomorphic pieces had a kind of impact the way tumors have an impact or disease has an impact. It's a fact. It is also, in a sense, created by God if you believe in God. So there was this sort of um, very powerful sense of horror and uh, factuality about those pieces that I think is not there as much in the flower pieces that she's trying to move, as you said, trying to move on to something. That's all. Great. Thank you. Uh, yes, lady in the front. Ellen? I found them to be very Victorian funerary, which you didn't talk about, and that sort of somber darkness of... Yes. I... Th um, I guess none of us felt the need to be it's a quite no 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 thank you for but we we perhaps were just assuming it and one of us should have stated those words uh, Victorian and funerary yes I think I'm sure we all had Madonna's next album in mind as the sort of perfect uh, Stevie next <laughs> um, you know David somebody did tell me at the opening that that some of the early works that she was making and then the ones that are sort of more like arte povera and simple. Mm -hmm. And then she went to the doctor and found out she had these fibroid, and the doctor goes, oh, they look just like fibroid tumors, which apparently she had. The person got all hushed and wouldn't give me additional details. So that it makes me think a little bit of that scene in uh, The Witches of Eastwick, where they put a spell on that woman and she spits up and <laughs> and so I didn't want to so we'll just say instead of being a female it you can really get into this kind of violent internal expression of a certain kind of self-identity that you know a body it's a body language mm -hmm. in a way that um, I mean you know I focus too much on the on the roses and the birds covered yeah. with wax I guess but some yes, of the ones we were, that are like bags and we've made gone out of canvas straight, yeah. I like rather better. We went straight for the surface excrescence and mm. then deconstructed it. None of us really perhaps picked out an image and said, well, this one, yeah. like um, little Ed's daughter, Margaret, and, and, and several of them had the sense of being tree persons. Uh, we had, they, they were very much personages rather than uh, environments. Yeah. I, I, I would just add the comment that uh, it's, I did feel that there was something evocatively diseased about Petacoin's art uh, that th there was almost in the her, her, her work tends to be either literally black or white uh, and in the black work the very textures of the tissues and the, the fabrics and the various mixed media she used it has something which had a had grotesque 
corporeal inf- uh, suggestiveness, almost like you know, sort of, you know, some, some uh, cancer or something. The the the, the very uh, the, the very texture of uh, the things lying on the floor. They looked almost like either. Uh, you know, some tumorous excrescence, or like something you might see under a microscope. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, anyone else on Dina Theta? Did we did we did we really miss the point of Dina Theta? Is there something compelling about her work that we, someone in the audience, would like to share with us? That um, uh, uh, yes, Ken at the front here. Uh, or, or no, Deborah. Yes, that's fine. Good, Deborah Garwood. Uh, my thought in the Diana Theater was that um, you know when I was looking at that crane structure, I had a feeling it was a kind of periscope. You know that it was that she might be in there in a basket. In fact, because there was no way I could make sense out of the passage of the leaves um, without thinking of someone being in a basket-like cherry picker kind of thing. Because this you know movement swooping up, swooping over. There was no other way she could have done that. So there's a way that the view is, uh, she's sort of looking at her, she's looking at nature and then she's looking back at herself. That, yeah, that's the point of the piece. Pardon me? That's exactly the point of the piece. In okay. other words... I, I didn't actually hear anyone say that, so sorry oh. if it was redundant. But, sorry, we, we should have said that more clearly then, because that's definitely the kind of premise, is that on the one hand there's the the view from the crane, that's the 300-foot crane. On the other hand, there's the crane itself. It's like... It's like a, a photograph and a picture of the camera. She likes all that apparatus because the mm. projection projectors <coughs> there striking you in the eyes, and all the wires are there. It's right. It's and ideological in a way. I it's, she, it's, it's in a way, she is trying to make a whole, make the whole thing. She's kind know, of structuralist. Do, do all kinds of things mm. about theater and light and paintings and color and the real world and the gallery space and architecture and nature. And you know, she tries to bring it all in and. If you get sort of wound up in that, it can be very exciting. What I didn't understand is, so she's, she's got her camera in the rainforest, and she's filming the bushes, and, she's, and they're whizzing by. She's not, like, she's not examining the individual leaves. They're whizzing by. I guess the, the things on the floor were slow, but the things on the wall are all whizzing. And, you know, in the corner, like Alexi was talking about, there's this effect that I've, I was thinking... She just likes to shine that film in the corner and watch the lights whiz by, and that's what she likes, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is a sort of a really simple approach, you know, to what's going on. But at the same time, there's like this whole conceptual armature that's kind of mm. kind of turns me on, you know. It does turn you on. Oh, great. Good. Well, okay. it's, I mean, it's deconstructing PBS, right? That's yeah, exactly. That's... It's deconstructing the Nature Channel. Well, yeah. Ken uh, Johnson. Uh, I. I... I just, um, this is sort of a question for the panel, because I was thinking you have this Dionysian pita coin and you have an Apollonian Diana Theater. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if your reactions as critics had anything to do with a deeper kind of sense of affinity for one or the mm-hmm. other. Or, I mean, you're both, you're all being sort of very conscientious about taking each thing on its own terms and, mm-hmm. and, that's no, a I mean, is, let's, I let's sense a, a kind of animosity against Diana Theater for her mm-hmm. being cerebral yeah. and cool or cold. I, 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 I think uh, that's a great question too. But I mean, my my problem isn't that um, I like a lot of cerebral artists. Mm-hmm. My problem with Diana Theater is I don't really think that she 
has shown us like what's quirky about her own aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I see her as like a good that's, student. That's a, isn't that a, a prejudice? I mean, well, is, is quirky no, I mean, the operative criteria? Well, okay, maybe quirky, maybe quirky is too She's loaded a word. But in other words, I think you can be cerebral and still be pecu- uh, distinctive. And I don't, in a way, I don't think that work is really truly distinctive. I think she, she occupies a space that is part of a kind of art world interest in you know, highly self-conscious critical thought, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, she didn't come out of the Whitney program, but she might as well have. Um, Is that a bad thing? Mm -hmm. I I, I take up, I'll take up Ken's challenge directly because my my problems with uh, 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 Coyne and Theta were precisely that. Coyne, his question is, do you think that perhaps, he was saying that uh, Petter Coyne's work, all that emotion and affect is very Dionysian and that uh, um, uh, Diana Theta, this uh, very uh, cerebral, theoretically minded, uh, austere artist is very um, Apollonian and do you critics, he's saying, perhaps respond positively or negatively to one or the other because of of a predisposition to the Apollonian or the Dionysian? Is that a fair summary of your question? Good. Okay. And I say exactly that this is the problem. It's like if I'm taking a shower, uh, Petter Coyne is just, just the hot with no cold in it, and Diana Theta is just the cold with no hot in it. And it may sound boring, but I, I kind of like a shower to be warm and comfortable. Um, <laughs> they don't want to be frozen or scalded. It, it seemed to me that Coyne was all affect slash effect, and, and it wasn't channeled towards... Um, within the work itself towards something that was kind of making compelling sense of the craft. And, and in Diana Theta, there was this sort of very clever art world kind of um, deconstructions of uh, uh, this, that, and the other. But I, Not that clever. No, well, clever in quotes. But it didn't, 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 not clever enough to actually convey something of uh, emotional resonance. Perhaps the two of them should get together. I don't know. Well, Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, yes. Say that I, I think that's a good question, and I would. I, I do find that there is a kind of. I, I feel a certain resonance with uh, the work of Petacoin for uh, temperamental reasons that I don't feel with uh, with theater. Having said that, I think that it's not sufficient for me that Petacoin be. Dionysian, it's that she be effectively Dionysian. With an artist like uh, Theater, one of the problems I have is that I don't get the sense that she is Dionysian or Apollonian. Uh, she's certainly not Dionysian, she's just dull to me. So, so I don't respond to it in those terms. And I would say that if an artist were compellingly Apollonian, I would admire that artist for different reasons, or for a different part of my experience, uh, to the extent that I do pet a coin. Right. Great. Um, I think actually, I've, you, oh, thank you, but we're going to move on now, because I've got an eye on the watch, but it's good that we're um, generating a bit of heat now. Let's, uh, uh, James Hyde, it seems to me, if I could just lead on James Hyde, that um, uh, he's, he's a, a, a prime example of an Apollonian artist, but he couldn't be uh, couldn't leave you in a couldn't leave me in a, in a more different emotional or aesthetic state than than Theta. I mean, Theta, well, Hyde, it seems to me, raises kind of prim- really primary issues. Um, he's, he's somebody who 
is, is, is a real artist who gets his hands dirty, he's moving around colors and shapes and forms, but it's never as a formalist. It's always as somebody who seems to be have this uh, perennial, um, almost childlike um, obsession with the, the, the uh, linguistic structures of the art that he's dealing with. It's telling that one of his works is called Paragraph. I think he's a sort of uh, a late uh, semiotician. He's, just kind of, he's kind of, he, he recalls, um, I think it's telling that he really recalls the um, uh, art of the 60s and 70s, that sort of innocent, and it, it's sort of innocent and pretentious at the same time, interest in language, getting back to basic structures, opening things out, asking some very fundamental questions, but also very sophisticated ones, and coming up with results that are not a kind of dry essays in semiotics, but really kind of fun um, uh, uh, games with language and games with form. Um, I, I, came, I, I, I can't say it means this. I can't say this one is better than that one necessarily. Or I could in, in, the, in, the, in the gallery, but um, I just felt good with the work. I thought this is good, fun, strong work that's asking the right questions. Did anyone have an opposite uh, reaction uh, to that? What kind of games with language? Games. I mean, <laughs> games that people play. I mean, I can't, it's not, I can't tell you what the rules were of that game, and I can't necessarily tell you if he won or not, but I have this sensation of, of play, uh, play with language. Well, I, I didn't... You perhaps have read more about him than I did. Uh, I wasn't... I, I actually read a little bit about him, but I haven't read a lot. I didn't get the impression, so it would be news to me, if language and semiotics were a big concern of his, they very well might be. What I found, the, here, here's how I would assess what I think he's trying to do. He's, if you take what Robert Ryman does, he, he's famous primarily for his white-on-white -white paintings in varying degrees of sculptural texture. And the great fun of Robert Ryman's work is to see how with that radical reduction of terms he can get, he can pull out something new, right? When you think that it's no longer possible to come up with something new, he will come up with something new. Obviously, uh, uh, Hyde is not a monochromatic artist or painter or anything like that, quite the opposite. But the terms of his art, the reduction of his art, as I understood it, was to see what kind of painting or substitute for painting you could get out of this. Because basically, there are a, most of his work is painting in one form or another, even when it's aggressively structural. So. The, the, the unifying theme, the constant reduction, is trying to create a painting out of everything other than paint. Um, and to see how he keeps managing to do that is interesting and invigorating. Uh, in the work that was in the gallery this time, I have to say that I felt that it was better for what it aspired to than for what it achieved. and there was a certain paltry, almost inadvertent amateurism to the way these works were confected. So I understood what he was trying to do, but I didn't feel that he, he achieved it. 
Is it possible, uh, Alexei or Walter, that in fact paltriness and amateurism are what he's aspiring yeah, to? Yeah, I think inadvertent is not right. I think it's totally deliberate. I mean, I think my take and David's are fairly similar. I wouldn't have emphasized language so much. I think that's part of his interest. But they are, um, they are full of humor of a particular kind, a kind of wryness that I, I enjoy a lot. Um, I think this, this, we see him at an interesting turning point in his work that earlier, um, I don't know how much people in the audience know, his earlier work was often very big. Um, some of them were incredibly seductive, kind of immediately, um, uh, uh, there were glass boxes, for instance, that were, glass boxes, pieces, for instance, that were um, kind of 3D versions of abstract expressionist painting. Um, the work here is much less seductive. It is, it's paltry, and I think in a very deliberate kind of cutting back way. Um, I think there's an effort to use kind of cheap, dirty, um, clumsy materials, especially that wood, that kind of one by fours or whatever he's using. And I think also very deliberately kind of childlike, um, uh, you know, super simple. There's, you know, there's kind of constellation of artists hovering in the background behind that show that would be mm. not just Ryman, certainly, but Judd also in that, um, mm. the metal piece with the two shelves running across called Equivalent. Um, Kelly in the um, um, couple of pieces that are kind of painted out photographs. I don't know if, I'm thinking particularly of the, the Kelly postcards yes, and collages, yes. yeah. Um, Carl Andre, you know, there's the, that Christmas tree thing with the floor diagonal pattern. And then in a weird kind of way, overall Tuttle and all these all these people kind of, yeah, I don't, I, I guess I wouldn't see Schwitters, but may, as, as directly, um, but, but all those people are people interested in kind of, um, um, you know, economy of means, a kind of simplicity, and he's doing to me kind of something that has a generationally different feel, albeit it's, it's again very simple and um, formally allied, and he's not hiding those, the kind of ancestry of the work. Can but I just, sorry. Go ahead. I just want to clarify. I, I fully take your point that it's, it's not inadvertent, it's intentional. Uh, but I understand the almost arte povera uh, foundations of it and the ambitions of it. I understand it's not supposed to be a polished work. I understand that there is supposed to be a... Uh, a faux naive quality to it, if you will. It's just that even taking that into account and taking into account the rather large corpus of modern and contemporary art that has had similar ambitions, to, to my sense, it fell a little short. Let's bring in Walter, Alexei, okay. but uh, we'll come back to... No, let's keep him out. Okay. Yeah. We're having a good time here. He's having a sleep now. <laughs> hey, with us, Walter? I would just jump in and add to something that James said. And I went to the show with this artist, Serge Spitzer, who was telling me that Robert Ryman was a sculptor. And because, you know, it's all about, it's also material. It's all about the material of the materiality of the painting. So, of course, it's actually a sculpture. And in that sense, I guess James is working, James Hyde is working in you know, a, a very respected vein of artistic investigation. It might be, you know, 40 years old, but um, so, is a lot, so is a lot of our veins so of, of investigation. But, but, and the spirit, <clears throat> but the spirit... I like me. it, you know, and it, 
the spirit of the investigation seems to me very different from what it was 30 years ago, the kind of mm-hmm. super self-important earnestness yes, right, of yes. Andre or something completely changes here. And we get work that's full of a kind of lightheartedness and yet is still thinking about simple, serious things. It's the piece called Zero, um, which is sort of a, there's a kind of a pair of pieces, Zero and Halo, I think, the other one. Um, you know, both of them just incredibly simple, a kind of a um, handle to the wall or a handle to a reflective surface. So it's like, open up the mirror, open up the picture plane, you know, can you get there? Um, and then at the same time, there's this three-dimensional figure floating in space created by this reflection and mm-hmm. attaching to the physical object. It just seems to me that kind of elementary, fundamental questions about a two-dimensional, what a two-dimensional picture offers are, are there. And it's not, you're right that it's not the first time that those kind of questions have been asked at all. But it just seems to me that the kind of, the kind of, Earnest lightheartedness, the kind of um, generous smirk that those that it's delivered with, seems very kind of of our generation to me. Yes, I've, I responded to that, that that level too. I think perhaps the reason I launched in with a kind of semiotic <coughs> analysis of James Hyde is, is is was just picking up the challenge from from Ken that uh, if you know, can you like a really Apollonian kind of art, art that is uh, sort of playing a game with language? Um, but to pick up on what Alexei was saying about this shift in, in, in Hyde's work, I, I have to say, perhaps it's the Dionysian in me coming out, that <coughs> I um, respect and admire the cerebral austerity and um, um, almost rather kind of gutsy um, impoverishment of this new body of work. I know that James Hyde was very, very engaged in, in the general election recently was not very happy with the results and I almost see a kind of um, almost see a sort of big fuck you in the in the in the um, dryness of this body of work but I have to say personally that I was massively in love with the huge cushions with like Monet type paintings on on the surfaces and that in a very surreal way like the Magritte painting of objects in a room filled the whole room <coughs> and also with the uh, very kind of baroque uh, painterly effect on these um, styrofoam um, fragments that was also the, the the most recent group of works and I hope that when he cheers up with, when the political situation improves enough for him to cheer up we 're not going, we're going to see a bit more of the Dionysian in James Hyde as well but I would just point out that in a funny way he and um, and Petacoin are in opposite places in their careers. To me, it seems like she has been making feints to break out of, of a very successful signature style, mm-hmm. not truly breaking through to, mm-hmm. to, to the next work. And I think that he is breaking through to new work. I think yes. that work will develop. And some of these pieces do feel maybe a little provisional. I don't think some of them are as, are as rich as earlier work. But... This is a show of a, a whole new bunch of things all at once. Yeah. Perhaps, the, perhaps I, I, find, I feel that the richness of his <coughs> signature style is not to have one, but to have a, a signature um, curiosity and not to have a signature style. Right. Um, good. Let's move to our fourth artist. Um, as we're dealing with um, uh, naivety and knowingness, I think that would certainly be a, a, a good way into the work of um, Cecily Brown. Do you agree, um, Walter? What, what, did, what, what did you come away with from the latest... Batch of works by by art world phenomenon Cecily Brown. Well, I I kind of like the paintings. I run into um, Peter Sheldahl there, and he was taking notes, and he goes, 
Kesapkas. And then he goes, What's that? Lyrical abstraction. And I'm like, Peter, you're too old, man. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff is like too old. I, I, you know, I like them. I, I like Cecily a lot. I like, um, I like the way they, that, I like the story that, I like the fact that she's a New York Studio School grad. And finally, you can see all that New York Studio uh, um, well, negative space that. stuff, like coming, coming to, to pay off in, in an avant-garde career. And then, you know, I like the idea that she was sort of working and then she discovered that David Sylvester was her father and suddenly launched into this Giacometian, uh, de Kooning kind of, kind of stuff. I thought that, I think that's kind of an interesting sub-story. And also, you know, she started out doing this explicitly erotic stuff that you didn't quite have to puzzle out so much what was going on. You know, like, the, the art establishment hated her, and I think, like, uh, you know, Robert Storr said in 1990, Robert Storr said five years ago, you know, she'll never be in the Museum of Modern Art with that stuff. And I think, in a way, she, she's reacted to that and pulled back and gotten more pastoral. But at the same time, she's, I think she's, um, she's, like, equivocating a little bit because her whole thing, they still look... Like more like open wounds than any, you know, abstract expressionist painter. Maybe that's not true, but they still look like like kind of like open wounds. But do you mean I, literally they look like open wounds, or do you mean that there's yeah, these many areas in abeyance that there's a well, deep set ambiguity in the painting? You know, I don't like having to to do the Where's Waldo thing and figure out what the hidden imagery is. I don't like that. You know. <laughs> But I guess once you find it, you feel kind of you feel kind of uh, goosed about it. And now, somebody who saw that well, wears he's, 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 he's making fun of my. Um, I'm not making uh, fun, but make fun of myself. Um, I uh, I went to see the show twice, and the first time I had one take, and then today I went back having, after having talked to my friend Dennis Carden, who said like, "Oh no, man, you got to go check out all the hidden imagery," and I was like, you know. And then I was looking at it, and I did no drugs beforehand, and I uh, I was really kind of amazed at at I mean some of the there's little pieces of things that anybody could see little you know hands here and a leg there and a knee, but if you look at those paintings um, with the presumption that they are representational images, not abstract paintings with little little fragments of, some of them turn out to be that. And turn out to be what? Turn out to be coherent representational images, and I—they I, must I just, be based on some old masters the, or the other. I, I'm not. I don't think so. The freakiest one is in the small the room you enter on the left, um, and I think those two paintings were maybe my favorite paintings anyway in the show. But the the one on your right as you enter that room, I had no—I would never have seen this um, without uh, looking for for a little bit longer than I expected to. Turns out to be. A figure sitting playing either a guitar or a drum, and it's, a, it's the figure is painted in white, and you have to kind of follow the white to find it. Now, does that mean it's a great painting? I, I don't know, but it is. It's it is surprising. It kind of dis, dis, destabilized my initial take on the work to see. Um, I mean, then you turn the corner and around the left-hand uh, painting in the main room. I think pretty clearly there are figures lying on a couch watching television. Again, not. I mean. Uh, 
I, I certainly never saw that before. And I, you know, there's another image in the, in the small room. Again, it's called Park, and in fact, there's a kind of wall of Central Park or some, some park. And it's again, it's much more a much more coherent representational image than I had had imagined. I, I could, I'm not going to bore you with going through like what's there to find in the in the other ones. And there is a kind of where's Waldo or Tchelichu kind of um, something a little uh, nervous making about it, but. The, the the imagery is 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 even when you see it it's kind of here and then gone and then back um and that seemed to me you know at least um at least kind of surprisingly fresh as a as a as a formal quality in the work that she's uh layering in um images that are are not present to you know reasonably sophisticated eyes for a good long time well I'm not going to cast aspersions on, on the uh, reasonable sophistication of Alexei Wirth's eye, but I think it's pretty obvious that most of those paintings are riffs on old master paintings. You've got uh, Susanna and the Elders by Artemisia Gentileschi in one corner. You can see the, the man leering and the little bit of um, thigh there. And you've got uh, the, that, um, that, that Tiepolo, with the, I think Park is based on either Tiepolo or Poussin, I can't remember which. It doesn't really matter. They're obviously, most of them, based on old master paintings. Um, but then they're in a kind of radical state of uh, meltdown. Um, um, I think these were, I think, you know, this woman has talent. I mean, she, she can really fill a room with bold, bright color. Uh, the images uh, are um, big and strong in their way, um, and uh, and they're sexy. Um, I, I mean, compared to most artists, most painters out there, she's got a kind of uh, a stamina and a, a gutsiness and a, a verve that, uh, you know, one shouldn't look the gift horse in the mouth. But I just feel, perhaps because I want to, perhaps they make me want to like them and understand them a great deal, I, I think that they are, um, they just don't have that inner kind of pictorial or emotional core that justifies the energy that seems to go into their construction. And um, I, I'm just maybe not sufficiently a postmodernist to be, to, to be in perpetual thrall to a painting that's about um, meltdown, that's about irresolution, that's about uh, ambiguity and incoherence. Um, I know that those are things that de Kooning, we, from reading the biography uh, recently, we, and also just knowing the work there, um, many of her ambitions at, at a certain kind of painterly level are also de Kooning's ambitions, but my God, the results in de Kooning are of a different uh, order. So uh, I say, you know, A plus for effort. The woman's got stamina, talent, energy, and a certain, a certain charisma. Uh, but uh, not yet a pass as far as creating galvanizing, compelling uh, images of integrity. Shall I? Yeah, follow that, man. Go on. <laughs> I'm largely in agreement with you there. Uh, I would say that you can view her art as being primarily representational, primarily abstract, primarily an attempt to exploit the conflict between the two. And in my opinion, her ambitions, or her effort as you would say, in any of those three cases is admirable. Of the four artists whom we've discussed to, tonight, she comes closest to 
the most traditional formal, formalist ambitions, and I think for that she's to be applauded. Like you, however, I feel that even if you correctly assess her ambitions, it is not one thing to aspire and another to achieve, and looking at her work as abstraction or as quasi-representation, the thing that was uppermost in my response was always a kind of bold deficiency in the very application of the paint. I understand that that was to some degree her ambition, but that part of the ambition wasn't worthy, a uh, worthy ambition as far as I felt. And there was always a sense, th th the thing about de Kooning, to use your comparison, and I fully share your preference for de Kooning, de Kooning had this great power to cause the paint to become something other than paint, to transcend the pure physicality of the paint, to suggest a richness, an experiential richness beyond the paint, as well as to revel in the properties of the paint, through the properties of pa that paint, to achieve a kind of transcendence. You never had the sense with de Kooning that it just stayed paint, and that's the feeling I get with, uh, with her work. I don't, I, I just, in a way, I don't think we disagree that much, but I'm not so interested in saying, yes, yeah, she's not so great, because I, I think that's where we are. But I'm kind of interested in whatever it is that she's doing. And um, to me, um, the, you can see that she's like using dead brushes, you know, that her brushes are kind of worn out and, and like there's nothing to them and, and she's using them kind of indifferently. But, um, and, and you know, and which is my way of anyway agreeing with like, it's, it's, not, it's not painterly with the same kind of um, gliding, wristy beauty that de Kooning gives us or lots of other people. But it seemed to me that there was a kind of um, fractious, sharp-edged, um, energetic, um, um, kind of rhythmic um, feistiness to the, 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 the paintings. Not at the level of individual stroke, which was often not interesting, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. a, a little bit back, a kind of... It seemed to me that she was coming... Um, she was m making a point of delivering each brushstroke from a different angle. Mm -hmm. That you know that there was a kind of um, there was little change-ups of of length and um, you know kind of simple formal things that were done so much that they were intuitive and actually really uh, really her that gave those things um, despite the kind of drably bright color. A, a kind of real, a real something, a real, she lifted to totally traditional abstract abex painting mm -hmm. up a lot further than I would have expected it could be and removed it from its, you know, you know, umpteenth generation abex that, that, it, that it should be. So it seems to me that there's, you know, something fairly considerable in that. I, I keep wondering... Um, about what someone like Amy Silman would think about her work. I feel like yeah. there's a kind of coyness in the representation, and uh, leaving apart a little bit this side of how representational they are, because again, I think that is, I'm a little unsettled, and I feel like I have to go back another time to, to work that into my judgment of them, but, but I feel like Amy Silman is somebody whose work is kind of coy, full of, um, full of fractious um, representational clues and cues and, um, and change-ups and 
Yes. Um, I, I would love question, to hear her you, talk. I'd love to hear her talk, but I, I'd also like to say that, you know, it seems to me Amy Solman has a, a, a very compelling, the, the naivete of, of Solman is deep and authentic and true to the actual work that it's happening. And also there's a, uh, an intense personalism in, in, uh, in Silman that I, I seems to be a slightly off-the-wall comparison. What's, what, what actually resonated with me is that in the same gallery some years earlier, we'd seen uh, David Sally's uh, tapestry painting paintings, you know, and it seemed to me that actually they were much more on a par with those in, in terms of scale and ambition, that, that it was... Um, something of a postmodern game with representation and yet an ability to and yet well that's interesting yeah because sally obviously has always got his tongue in his cheek and he's always there's always that dry apollonian even when it is kind of sumptuous in quotes uh it seems that cecily brown is incapable of irony really she belongs the the the, the, the my take on Cecily Brown is that she, she belongs to an ironic generation, but she's personally, temperamentally incapable of irony. As, as, as regards... Which is good, which is good, which is what I like about it. As regards paintings that have been in that room uh, and connections between them, uh, I would point out that uh, there did seem to me something of the shattered plate paintings of Julian Schnabel, which... Well, there is something 80s and German about her work. Yeah, very yeah. Or even, even 60s and German. They very much remind me of Bernard Schulze, the post-war um, abstractionist, and perhaps that's uh, the, the, the kind of reference that uh, Scheldahl was picking up, Walter, do you think? Yeah, I think? I think they're kind of awful looking, and they've always been awful looking. They're not at all tasty. Like, you look at the Kooning now, and it's just overwhelmingly tasty, and her stuff is so awful looking, and the question is whether... We're going to all come around, you know. We're, or I guess people have already come around. Maybe it's, it's just me. Yeah. That and you know, like in the art world, and aesthetics and taste, meaning rushes in where I'm not sure what leads. <laughs> Money leads. leads truth, you know, yes. I thought that about the Matthew Barney show. I thought you mean I have to. I'm supposed to parse this stupid Vaseline on the floor and this guy with the rag in his mouth. You know, I hate that. I hate that, but. What I think doesn't matter, you know, the art world is rushing to fill that work with valuable meaning. And somehow I think it might be interesting, you know, in terms of Cecily's work too. Like she's obviously doing, I guess in the 70s, like Sigmar Polka's mm -hmm. abstractions and the whole Dusseldorf school thing, they, they would be really trying to do untasteful things. And now, of course, you look at Polka, and they're incredibly beautiful. So is that what's going to happen to this stuff? I mean... They're ready-made beautiful. I think I, I disagree with you. I, I, I don't think she's... I mean, she's, she's got some of the energy of bad already. painting. You don't think Oh, yeah, they're, they're pretty already. I don't think they're beautiful already. I think they're pretty already. I think that um, she's... I think they're, like, anti-aesthetic. No, no. These are saleable luxury goods objects. They're, they're nicely put together. They're good color. Good, bad color. They, everything bad about them is good, and everything good about them is bad. And the question is whether she knows that or not, or whether it's good or not, I or whether it's bad or not. The bad stuff is bad, too. Aha, uh -huh, the bad stuff's bad, too. Okay. Listen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's get some of your views on both James Hyde and Cecily Brown, the, uh, the Apollo and Dionysus of... Uh, of uh, well, who cares if they're the Apollo and Dionysus? Let's get your opinions, please, on, uh, on these two artists, or one or the other. Well, what we've said about Cecily Brown, she's quite young, isn't she? She like 35. So she's a young artist, yes. and she is natively talented. 
I think she draws uh, with her brush quite well. Um, I do see a Studio School Marathon painting in there, now that you mentioned it. Um, but I would just wait and see what she can, um, where she will go. I mean, I, I, w I would, I, 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 I like the vitality of it. Um, it is very chaotic, but for me, it was, it drew me in more, and it's a, I would say she's similarly ambitious as Peter Coyne. I ran out of Peter Coyne's show as fast as I could. Mm. I don't know if that's good or bad, but viscerally, I, and I was with mm. Ellen, and I said, I have to get out of here. Well, the irony is that, that uh, Cecily Brown actually has a, a title to one of her paintings that it sounds like you would, you would extend to Peter Coyne, uh, I Will Not Paint Any More Boring Leaves. But anyway... Um, it wasn't that the Peter Coins were boring, they were... They were... They but were you had repulsive. a negative... Ah, repulsive. They, they were ah. repulsive Well, that's me. a strong emotion, isn't that yeah. good? Well, I kept... It was like death. They were like creepy pine cone death. Okay. I couldn't... I just had an incredibly big reaction to them. Well, that's good, isn't it? Um, I don't know. No, I'd rather look at that. Okay. But it's better than that. Good. Another comment. Uh, yes, Gregory Avanoff. <laughs> Desperately trying not to say something, I it was just to think about the Hyde show, and I don't know him, you know. Uh, I, I just wonder, you know, Alexi, when you were talking about generational sort of, you know, the generational ambiance and the take that, you know, and I mean, it's there. It's a kind of, you know, a flat-footedness that 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 we when you talk about rushing in meaning, I mean, I I have a really hard time with that idea. I mean. You know, I was thinking about Tuttle, because like, Tuttle was a lot there for me, you know. But the one thing about Tuttle is, is, and whether you believe the shaman, you know, sort of veil around him or not, doesn't really matter. He forces, you know, he makes an intimate moment that you question whether it's deliberate or whether, or, or whether it's simply just something he threw down. And he forces you to think about that. You, so you have to think about where meaning is really coming from. The, the kind of flat, and, and sometimes it's just banal, pieces of crap that look like they were put in a pile. You know, I'm thinking of shows from a while ago. I haven't seen the Drawing Center show right now. And, you know, none of that magic, I, I couldn't find any of that, you know, in the Hyde pieces. For instance, the two or three gouache or whatever they were, acrylic. I mean, I feel, you know, when you think about painting, uh, haven't the arguments that are sideways to painting, trying to make a painting that's sideways to painting, that comments on painting, seems to me that that argument's over. I mean, there's a whole, there's two or three generations since that who who find real richness, you know, Dana Schutz notwithstanding, or any number of artists, whether they're more Apollonian or we got to quit using that, uh, wherever they come for that for that time. But you know, it seems to me that that argument is tired. So then you're left with sort of ascribing meaning with this kind of nonchalance and this frailty in those objects. And I understand the charm of it, but I don't think it. The charm withers for me. Anyway, stop. stop. Let's have some more. Ken, uh, you know I, 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 I do. Okay. But, oh, right, sorry, let's sorry. Maybe we will have a little conversation and then Ken will st start on a new track. Unless, unless you're res you're, you want to respond, to, respond that. to that. I don't think uh, James Hyde's about magic or about meaning. I'm struck by, I'm remembering what Lynn Hoginian said in the 70s about language poetry that you have to take apart the language in order to take apart the way you think. I mean, we can think of a hundred different paraphrases for that. But I think that's closer in the fact that you made an analogy about 
how he was involved in politics and disappointed by the election, that seems relevant to the body of work he just made. Okay. Um, right. I, I agree. In, in some ways, I think you're bringing expectations that don't belong to that work, but um, I, I do. Yeah, yeah. But I think that, I mean, it's true that Tuttle does something that, that Hyde doesn't do, which is, um, you know, give you this, my God, do I really have to consider this to be art? I think with Hyde, you know it's art much more clearly. It's, it's God, it's kind of, pro, brings its provenance with it. I don't, but, but more importantly, I don't think that there was an argument going sideways to painting. I don't think that that was an argument that's resolved. I think it's simply, um, Questions about the fundamental kind of parts of the practice of painting were opened up, and people can return to them if they do so interestingly. It seems to me he does. I, the fact that other people can can take those, take their take a position and move on and not address those questions is fine. But I mean, in a way, this is where we are in the art world. This is what pluralism means, which is that a lot of different sites are open. One of them is people interested in going back to elementary things and looking at them. And seeing what they, what what fresh thing they can get out of looking. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. Like that. I, I was talking more, and I, I talked too much, so I missed my point. I was talking more about sort of ascribing meaning to, and, and glorifying the, the. Sometimes the banal is just banal. In other right, words, right. if they're blocks right. of wood, they they can be just that. And somehow, I guess sometimes I'm disturbed by the 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 the, the projection generationally, you know, which is a term you used of of meaning into that kind of glorifying that casual. Banality. Anyway, that's great. Let's go back, Ken Johnson. But I think, as David said at the beginning, there, the, the the paintings are literally about language. There's one called paragraph. The the way the blocks of wood are lined up are like words on a page. So he's telling you, I'm making work that's about thinking about painting as text, and we live in a in a uh, you know we've been expelled from the the garden of Eden of modernism into this kind of semiotic, you know, place where everything means. You can't, nothing, nothing anymore has sort of just, it is just what it is. It is for Tuttle, but so Hyde's work is only interesting if you read every piece of it semiotically. And it is interesting when you start reading, you, you, the handle on the panels, Jasper John's, you know, it's like everything in it is is about living in a forest of signs. And, and that, that's not just, I mean, that's where we live. Anybody who graduated from college since the 70s and learned art history from slides, that's, that's our, a fact of life for an, for an artist, I think. Right, I, I agree. I, I guess the point I was making earlier, if that's what you're responding to, um, is that I don't think the title and the kind of, the plays that, that the title keys you to, like paragraph, are necessarily the core of the work or the only important part of it. I think in some of those things like Halo, I think there's the idea of ennobling the viewer. There's a kind of little joke there. That's not the most interesting part of that work to me. I mean, that seems to me like it gets a little clever and, and too light. Okay. I mean, that, that's where I would you know, maybe agree a little bit anyway with what Gregory was saying. Okay, but, but I actually had a question for the panel. Isn't isn't, don't both these artists have the problem of coming late to the party? Yeah. And like, yeah. can I take, what can I pick up and do with it? Mm -hmm. So that's one question. And, and like, so how do you orient yourself to, to critically to uh, Cicely Brown? Because 
if you don't get where they're coming from, if you say, oh, it's not as good as the Kooning, therefore it's not good, you're not like getting what they're about or what their moment in history that yeah. makes what they do where you're the right... That's a like a question. Late to the party like for both Hyde and Brown. Let's have the, the okay, panel well, on I would, that. I would say this, that uh, I, w I would question the, the degree to which you seem to find the importance of their work in their relation to previous art and a certain po a kind of postmodern uh, self-referentiality and the primacy of textuality and semiotics in their work. Uh, I, I, especially the, the assertion that that is how all art nowadays is either being created or how we must look at all art whenever it's been created. I'd say that it is true that you, you could probably you could probably find elements of that in their work. Perhaps uh, one could say that there are two ways of looking at at uh, Cecily Brown. One would be, and I have no problem doing this, though I understand that there are complications in uh, the purely formal elements of it. Then there is the question, well, obviously those formal elements are not original, they're quite, tra they're quite traditional, so to what extent does that traditionality undermine what she's trying to do um, or strengthen it? I, I have no problem looking at it straight on because I feel that, it, uh, that even though there is all this talk about semiotics now and there was not 40 years ago and there may not be 40 years from now, it might go out of fashion, I think that you can still look at the art in more or less purely formal terms, making some allowances for the place of the person in the grander tradition and perhaps the intentions of the person or what the person thought his or her intentions were, mm. which may not be the case. I think that Cecily Brown very much, one real source for her, um, <clears throat> which is becoming less and less apparent, perhaps that's good, is School of London painting, that her early work was very, very strongly, heavily influenced, directly engaged with David Hockney and R.B. Kitai, and then she sort of worked through Freud and Auerbach as well. And, of course, through her discovered father, Sylvester, there's a, a stronger connection with that as there is with um, Giacometti and de Kooning, who are, anyway, exemplars for the School of London. And the School of London's all about being late for the party. I mean, Freud and Auerbach are always saying, you know, painting's really has finished, and we're just a coda, we're just a footnote to it. And, uh, and so I think, um, I think that... Um, in a way, Cecily Brown, what's so spunky about that work is that uh, uh, she's, she's late for the party, but her strategy is to break down the door and uh, get back in there. Um, and uh, um, as for her being very young, yes, yeah, she is young, but, you know, she's had a retrospective at the Hirshhorn, and she's shown by the Gagosians, so how young is young? Uh, Hyde, I agree, is, is Hyde, in, Hyde is a neo 70s artist. I mean, he's, he, he could be in the 70s, except for the fact, as, as Alexi says, he just doesn't have that kind of pomposity that the 70s had, and nor is he kind of, nor is he uh, kind of absolutely hung up on this boring question, is it art, or what is art? He's just, he's just making art, so there's a kind of freshness there that takes him out of time for me. 
late for the party, Walter? No, no, isn't... Um... And instantly there's going to be a party in about two minutes and just behind us, everybody. Uh, I'm, so... I'm really conscious that what we're working with now is like a whole set of aesthetic strategies that seems were mapped out in the 60s. And of course, most of those aesthetic strategies were mapped out at the beginning of the 20th century, too. And I don't know, isn't the whole postmodernist pitch that 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 view of history is actually mistaken and that we're living in a contemporary, we live, we live in a time now and everything is, you know, should be relevant to that, not in terms of some crazy construct. But, so, so like the joke that, you know, Cecily Brown is today's Walter Darby Bannard, but nobody remembers Walter Darby Bannard. He's old, she's young, so, but, then, you know, like the, the hippest young artist I know is this guy, Corey Archangel, and his practice, as I'm sure you know, is to hack Atari video games. He doesn't paint, he doesn't even use video. He makes video games and, you know, he says, like, that's what I grew up with. That was my, you know, that was my DC Comics, the uh, video games. So, okay. in 20 years, we may be looking back and at a whole different pantheon of, I don't know, futuristic digital artists. Let's look forward to that. Is there anybody mm. bursting to comment who hasn't so far? Uh, yes, Drew Lowenstein? Uh, yeah, I actually, I remember Walter uh, Darby Bannard, and um, I, I think in some respects he's similar to Cecily Brown, um, sort of biting his own tail in a sense, and, and um, doing a retake, a respin um, on things that had already been done. I think that the Hyde work um, I, I agree with Lexi in a sense. I think it's um, it's more progressive. It's it's more open um, to possibility, and he's he's using very bold strokes, and and, and he's different from Tuttle, who's who's so um, uh, in a sense uh, I don't want to say stingy, but incremental. And um, I think it's very difficult to sort of get so elemental as Hyde does, and, and use these bold strokes, and still. Uh, have one foot in the semiotic world and at the same time be able to suggest um, the presence of, of, of pictorial projection, which I think he's also involved in. And I think that um, um, judging from his earlier work, which, which clearly showed yeah. that, I think that uh, it still encapsulates that. And, uh, and there's, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. Great. We're all curious to see what happens with uh, Peter Coyne, Dinah Theta, James Hyde, and Cecily Brown. Thank you, Walter Robinson, Alexi Wirth, James Hyde, and the National Academy. James Gardner. James Gardner. James Gardner. Well, I feel like we were really bad. Well, that's what you said the first time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You were great. Very good.